Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. I got my start in journalism covering John Bolton when he was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations in 2005 and 2006. At the time, I was a reporter for the political monthly, The American Prospect, and I began to cover Bolton quite closely. You know, I I sometimes quip that I owe my career to Bolton because covering his time at the U.N. was my entry point into covering the United Nations more broadly. My reporting at the time culminated in a cover story that was published in January 2006 that detailed Bolton's tenure thus far at the UN and broke a few scoops along the way about his conduct. In this special episode of the podcast, I am going to share a few anecdotes from my reporting at the time that might shed some light on how he will perform his task as National Security Advisor to Donald Trump. I'll also survey some key issues around the world, including North Korea, Iran, transatlantic relations, and the United Nations, to see how Bolton's past interactions with these issues might suggest for the future of U.S. policy. I'll also explain the position of National Security Advisor to help you understand exactly where Bolton will fit in the bureaucratic politics of U.S. foreign policy making Needless to say, if you are a regular listener to this show, you know this is a different kind of episode. The podcast is typically an interview-based show. I have conversations with experts about topical issues, or I have longer discussions with people who have had interesting careers in foreign policy. In these conversations, I'll occasionally interject my own views, but for the most part, the other person is talking, and I like that. I really enjoy interviewing people, learning from them, and teasing out interesting stories that help explain broader issues in global affairs. Uh, But this time around, I'm something of the expert. And I think other people see me as such based on my past reporting. Uh, When news broke of Bolton's uh, appointment as National Security Advisor, I was on BBC's nightly news program. Uh, I was also on a couple of radio shows. And I had a piece up on on the Daily Beast as well, which I'll, I'll link to. So this episode is just me talking. Uh, After the break, I will share some anecdotes from my reporting that I think shed light on how Bolton will perform as National Security Advisor, and I'll offer some analysis about how his nomination may shape how the U.S. approaches some key foreign policy issues. So stay tuned. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. John Bolton's nomination as UN ambassador came sometime in early 2005, not long after George W. Bush had won re-election. 
This set off an intense battle in the U.S. Senate over Bolton's nomination. Eventually, he could not find the requisite support in the Senate, including from some Republicans who saw him as too much of an ideological outlier and extremist to effectively represent the United States at the United Nations. His confirmation fell through, but he was granted a recess appointment by George W. Bush and served as U.N. ambassador for a little over a year. So let me set the scene for you at the United Nations in August 2005, when John Bolton received his recess appointment. In one month, the United Nations would play host to the largest ever gathering of presidents and prime ministers who are coming to New York to mark the 60th anniversary of the United Nations. The UN General Assembly that September was to include a robust set of UN reforms to mark the occasion. These reforms included creating a new Human Rights Council to replace the old and discredited Commission on Human Rights, enshrining the responsibility to protect in UN doctrine, reaffirming global support for the anti-poverty Millennium Development Goals, and also some management reform to better streamline UN bureaucracies. All of these reforms were to be put in what is known around the UN as an outcome document that the heads of state would sign when they arrived for the summit in September. There had been months and months and months of painstaking negotiations between member states about this reform package, and by August, they were basically in the final draft stages. Then Bolton arrived. He blew up these negotiations pretty quickly by taking a pen to the nearly finalized outcome document and inserted hundreds of new edits, including many new red lines for the United States where none previously had existed. He was basically marking up the document left and right. Perhaps the most illustrative of these were his objections to mentioning the Millennium Development Goals. These were a set of eight goals that the UN adopted as a sort of guiding agenda to fight extreme poverty in the developing world. They were created in 2000 and lasted until 2015 when they were replaced by what's now known as the Sustainable Development Goals. In any case, by 2005, these goals, which called for things like reducing by half the number of people who live under a dollar a day, were very important to the developing world and for the global south more broadly. They were becoming part of the UN agenda. Even though George W. Bush did seem to be politically sympathetic to these goals, Bolton insisted that the United States never signed on to them in the first place, and therefore he could not agree to their inclusion in this outcome document. Even though George W. Bush did seem to be politically sympathetic to these goals, Bolton insisted that the United States never signed on to them in the first place, and therefore he could not agree to their inclusion in the outcome document. Bolton's maximalist position here and on other points threatened to blow up the whole outcome document and the whole reform package. Eventually, as I reported at the time, UK Foreign Secretary Jack Straw and UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called then US Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and she then reined Bolton in. He relented, the reform package eventually passed. That incident, I think, presaged Bolton's entire tenure at the UN. The memoir he wrote of his experience at the UN was titled, Surrender is Not an Option. But Bolton's time at the UN suggests that to him, the natural give and take of diplomacy is akin to surrender and must be avoided at all costs. And 
At the United Nations, Bolton demonstrated a profoundly zero-sum view of international relations. Other countries' gains, no matter how insignificant, were ipso facto America's losses. And I think this anecdote over the Millennium Development Goals and the Summit Outcome document illustrates that worldview fairly concisely. Another anecdote that I think it's worthwhile to share is about his time in the Bush administration prior to being UN ambassador when he served as undersecretary of state for arms control and international security. And this one has to do about the nascent international criminal court. First, some background. In the final days of the Bill Clinton administration, the United States signed the treaty that created the International Criminal Court. This is a court that was set up to try perpetrators of genocide and mass atrocities. It was politically controversial in the United States, but Bill Clinton signed it anyway, probably thinking correctly that the Senate would actually never ratify the treaty. In any case, as Bolton recounts in his memoir, he relished in the opportunity to kneecap the nascent International Criminal Court. In Bolton's early days as Undersecretary of State, he declared that the United States had, quote, unsigned the treaty. He remarked that this was his happiest moment of his life as a public servant. But that was not enough. Bolton then embarked on an international campaign to secure bilateral agreements with as many countries as possible to theoretically grant Americans immunity from prosecution by the ICC. He would threaten those countries that did not sign with a cutoff of military assistance. By all accounts, he was zealous in pursuit of these bilateral immunity agreements. Now, one can argue about the propriety of the International Criminal Court, whether or not it serves U.S. interests, whether or not the U.S. should join, but his fixation on these immunity agreements was truly something to behold. And it's something that there are a number of contemporaneous accounts explain pretty vividly. A piece in Lawfare by a number of another Bush administration, Matthew Waxman, uh, also discusses this uh, fixation. In any case, his pursuit of these immunity agreements sometimes created awkward and unnecessary friction with American allies. In 2003, for example, Latvia saw its military aid cut, even though it was one of the very few countries in Europe to contribute to George W. Bush's war in Iraq. Latvia was a member of the Coalition of the Willing, but it was not willing to sign into one of these agreements with the United States, so it saw some military aid suspended for a time, even though its troops were in Iraq. I, I draw on this anecdote oftentimes just to demonstrate how Bolton's fixation on issues of ideological peak can sometimes skew what one might argue are more consequential, broader U.S. foreign policy goals. So now what I want to do is take a look at some key issues and see how Bolton's past engagement on these issues might impact the kind of advice he gives to the president as national security advisor. First, let's talk North Korea. When George W. Bush came to office in 2000, they inherited what was known as the Agreed Framework with North Korea. This agreement involved the U.S. helping to construct proliferation-resistant nuclear power plants in exchange for North Korea not proliferating. The U.S. would also ship some fuel oil to 
North Korea. It was a frail agreement to be sure, but most experts believe that it significantly delayed North Korea's nuclear weapons program. Uh, let me read from the website of the Arms Control Association, which concisely explains how this agreement fell apart. Following North Korea's 1998 Taepodong missile test, the Clinton administration, with the assistance of former Secretary of Defense William Perry, conducted a North Korea policy review, which recommended building additional agreements on top of the agreed framework. However, just before the Clinton administration could reach an additional agreement with North Korea, President Bush was elected and began his own North Korea policy review, which stretched into 2002. Although the Bush administration review initially also called for further negotiations, before it could release the review, U.S. intelligence sources revealed that North Korea's centrifuge program was pursuing technology for a uranium enrichment program, which would produce material for nuclear weapons. Rather than confront the North Koreans and demand they halt their efforts to create a uranium enrichment capability, the intelligence findings gave those in the Bush administration who opposed the agreed framework a reason to abandon it. John Bolton, then Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security under President Bush, later wrote that, quote, this was the hammer I had been looking for to shatter the agreed framework. End quote. This is me talking now. It was shattered. IAEA inspectors have not set foot in North Korea since 2002, and North Korea is now in possession of several nuclear weapons. So Bolton, throughout his memoir, often says that, quote, he doesn't do carrots. To him, the only diplomacy that matters is coercion and threats. Meanwhile, Bolton has stayed true to his insistence that he doesn't do carrots. He had repeatedly called for preemptive strikes on North Korea and, tellingly, in a Fox News appearance just days prior to the Trump-Kim meeting announcement, Bolton dismissed the very idea of talks, insisting they are futile and wouldn't amount to anything, basically weren't worth having in the first place. The talks, I think, with North Korea were always going to be difficult. Now, there is a decent chance that they will be set up to fail and possibly hasten Bolton's preferred policy option, which includes a military strike. And now on to Iran. And first, again, some background after it was discovered in 2003 that Iran had a nuclear program, but unlike North Korea, no actual nuclear weapons, a group of European countries sought to entice Iran into negotiations in order to ensure that their nuclear program did not become a nuclear weapons program. Europe needed Americans backing here, but Bolton was incensed by this plan. Remember, he doesn't do carrots. Condi Rice, though, as part of a broader foreign policy shift in Bush's second term, gave this plan her backing, and by 2005, she had overruled Bolton, and she decided to tell him face-to-face -face this news over dinner, and Bolton, in his memoir, remembers what he ordered for appetizer, carrot soup. In any case, you can make an argument that this initial detente initiated by the Europeans and supported by Condi Rice eventually led to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal that was negotiated a decade later. Bolton, of course, is dead set against the Iran deal. He wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in 2015 
just as the uh, Iran deal negotiations were underway, titled, To Stop Iran's Bomb, Bomb Iran. Needless to say, Trump's support for the Iran deal has never been solid. It's, it's on very much on, on life support. The U.S. and its European allies right now are in negotiations to add new provisions to the deal to satisfy some of Trump's concerns, but these negotiations don't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, those talks have a deadline on May 12th, at which point it is likely that the U.S. will formally exit the deal. Uh, to be sure, I believe that this Exiting of the Iran deal probably would have happened without Bolton. Uh, Pompeo is a strong critic of the deal too. And Tillerson, whom Pompeo replaced, uh, was supportive of the deal. Um, but now I, I think it's all but certain for the U.S. exit of, of the uh, Iran deal to happen. John Bolton is perhaps the sort of uh, final dagger, as it were. And side note, if you want to understand what some of the broader foreign policy and geopolitical, geostrategic implications are of the U.S. pulling out of the Iran deal, I suggest that you take a look at my conversation with journalist Spencer Ackerman from uh, a few weeks ago, and I'll post a link to that on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Another issue I want to preview is what's next for U.S.-U.N. relations. Uh, so it's understood that Bolton and Nikki Haley get along pretty well. Uh, one thing I foresee is that Bolton as national security advisor may hasten this transition uh, about Nikki Haley's outlook on the U.N. that I've noticed has been happening over the past few months. Uh, in her first year in office, Nikki Haley was fairly conciliatory towards the UN, often acknowledging the organization's strength and working cooperatively with US allies towards common sense solutions and reforms to the UN as a whole. And she developed a pretty good working relationship with the Secretary General Antonio Guterres in particular. In general, she seemed to be the kind of UN ambassador that is more in the mold of, say, Zalmay Khalilzad, who is her immediate Republican predecessor, than of John Bolton. Although Haley, I should say, is incredibly politically astute, more so than both Khalilzad and, and Bolton. These past few months, though, I've noticed a change, and there has been, I think, a demonstrable change in Nikki Haley's outlook towards the UN. She's becoming far more aggressive, you could call it, including calling for the cutoff of U.S. financial aid and development aid to allies who do not vote with the United States in certain votes at the, the General Assembly at the United Nations. She's linked U.S. foreign assistance to how countries vote at the U.N. and whether or not they, they side with the U.S. on perhaps even issues of like symbolic uh, resonance and symbolic votes at, at the General Assembly. And also in recent weeks, Nikki Haley has led the charge in the Trump administration to cut off U.S. funding for UNRWA, the humanitarian aid agency that supports Palestinian refugees. And, and she did this over a, a vote that condemned the Trump administration's decision to formally call Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Uh, one thing I think that's key to watch in the near future as Bolton takes the helm at the NSA is how Haley's rhetoric about UN funding transpires. Uh, 
When she received her nomination and sat before the Senate answering questions, she said outright that she did not support a, quote, slash and burn approach to UN funding. And she has worked hard to, to cut UN budgets, including for peacekeeping, but she's done so, I think, within the realm of sort of what's one can normally expect from Republican administrations that tend to emphasize cutting down on UN spending. Now, Bolton's preferred approach to funding the UN is an a la carte approach. You pay for what you want in sort of an ad hoc manner. Uh, to the extent that Haley embraces this approach in the near future could suggest a, a certain amount of Bolton's influence and also could perhaps uh, augur where U.S. relations with the U.N. is is going. Because in effect, a, an ad hoc a la carte approach to U.N. funding would result in in massive U.S. reduction of funding to the United Nations, which could cripple the organization. So finally, let me take a quick look at transatlantic relations. Uh, earlier, I explained how Bolton, when he was ambassador to the UN, demonstrated a profoundly zero-sum view of international relations or other countries' gains, no matter how insignificant or ipso facto America's losses. That worldview upended traditional alliances at the UN. You know, typical of the way things are, are done is the US and its European allies would band together in negotiations in areas of common interest. But Bolton, unlike the European counterparts that he worked with, was never willing to give an inch and accept the kinds of trade-offs proposed by uh, America's allies. This created a lot of friction between Bolton and the Europeans. And in his memoir, what's what's so striking, and, and one thing that I really sort of can't emphasize enough from his memoir, is that he reserves his harshest criticism and deepest vitriol, not for you know, representatives from Iran or Venezuela, but for his British counterpart, the UK ambassador, Emir Jones Perry, whom he mercilessly pillories uh, throughout his book, and he calls a, quote, E-Uroid. And, and side note, I I'm trying to get uh, Sir Emir Jones Perry on the podcast. I would love to get his perspective on John Bolton as UN ambassador. But the, the point is that Bolton's worldview is is not one that mixes well in European context. It's not one that uh, allows for the kinds of non-zero-sum thinking that's necessary to kind of create a, a bigger pie and look for um, optimal diplomatic solutions to issues of, of common interest. It's one in which he won't give an inch, he won't budge, and is therefore seen as, as very aggressive towards the, the Europeans. I, I think we can expect yet another crisis in transatlantic relations coming soon. Uh, lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the role of the National Security Advisor. What does the National Security Advisor do? Uh, there's a really good book called Running the World, The Inside Story of the National Security Council and the Architects of American Power by David Rothkopf. And in it, uh, Rothkopf identifies 
two types of national security advisors, two sort of models that national security advisors have fit in in the, the modern era. There's the kind that he calls, quote, the honest broker model that seeks to incorporate diverse viewpoints, uh, seeks to assuage competing bureaucratic uh, priorities in order to present the president, the ultimate decision maker, with a competing set of ideas and sort of honestly portray to the president the various viewpoints serving up for the president to make uh, his decision. And in this kind of honest broker model, the national security advisor tends to emphasize his role as the convener of what's known as the interagency process, this process by which um, key foreign policy decisions are made and are brokered between, say, like the State Department, the Defense Department, the Treasury, and, and other competing interests. Basically, you take all these ideas and you sort of dispassionately present them to the president for him to make that decision. And in a uh, message to me over Twitter, Rothkoff identifies Brent Scowcroft, who is George H.W. Bush's national security advisor, as the prototype for uh, this kind of honest broker model. So that's one type of national security advisor, and I, I think you know where I'm, I'm going with this one. The other type is what one might call a lone wolf or, or an advocate, someone who vigorously pursues his or her own policy agenda and uses his position as the t at the top of the national security bureaucracy to sort of shut out competing voices. Uh, this is likely uh, the kind of role that we can expect Bolton to play. Uh, and again, I'll quote Rothkopf here, quote, he is more of the lone wolf and will be more of a one-on-one -on -one advisor to Trump who sees himself as a one-man show who doesn't seek advice as more as he seeks validation and spokespeople and defenders of his views. So bottom line, I think as national security advisor, we can expect John Bolton to be a very effective advocate for his preferred policy outcomes. And those outcomes often result in the use of force and alienating allies and subverting broader U.S. foreign policy interests to his ideological peaks. And now I am exhausted. Uh, so that's it. That that was um, my one-man show on John Bolton. Um, I, I hope not to do one of these uh, one-man show again. I hope you appreciated it. I thought there was something I could offer there. Um, please let me know what you think. Uh, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Uh, click on the contact button to send me an email. Let me know what you think about this kind of, of episode. Before I let you go, though, please... Do consider leaving a review on iTunes. Become a premium subscriber to the podcast to unlock more of my own musings on issues on world affairs, bonus episodes. And you could also uh, sign up to receive for free my Dawn's Digest Global News Clips service. This is a daily news roundup that I send to uh, various NGOs and, and age agencies uh, around the world. And it could be yours for free if you become a premium subscriber. I shouldn't say for free. It could be yours as a reward for becoming a premium subscriber. Anyway, thank you all. I really appreciate all your support, all your kind words. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye.
The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.